0: This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at wwwlabrie ideas libraryorg The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship.
1: Um, Yeah, as Joel said, former Libri worker. I, I was very amused to see the schedule come out. Um, when you come back and lecture at Labrie, no matter any, whatever, whatever else you do, your title is always former Labrie worker and (laughs) and ever shall it be. Uh, So I've joined the ranks of former Labrie worker. Uh, But as Joel said, I'm working with the rabbit room right now, and I'm just happy to revisit this topic of deconstruction, deconversion, um, which is a very important topic. Um, Yeah. So I, I've got um, normal lectures are eleven pages. Uh, this one's twenty-seven pages. So we've got a lot to cover tonight. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but why don't we just go ahead and jump in? Uh, so we're we're talking about. I've I've already used the terms deconstruction and deconversion. We can talk more about what exactly those are. Uh, but I I thought it might be good to just give a bird's eye view of deconstruction today. So the word keeps popping up to describe. Uh, the experience of the experiences of people whose Christianity has undergone a process of transformation or, or for some deconversion and it's gathered momentum as a label. It's certainly nothing new in the history of of the church people wrestling with their faith uh, but it's gathered momentum as a label in the past 10, fifteen years. Um, and it's it's kind of been used to describe the process of attempting to walk away from or question or make sense of, or make peace with, or reconfigure, uh, or sometimes just tear down one's former Christianity. Uh, let me hit you with some statistics just so we can um, ground our our discussion tonight in, in some facts. So Gallup, the polling organization, released a poll recently that revealed that church membership in America specifically has dropped below fifty percent, and that's the first time that's happened since Gallup started asking this question in 1937. So, according to Gallup, at least, the church membership is at an all-time low in America. Ryan Burge is a scholar who's done a lot of work on uh, deconversion, and he he wrote a book a couple of years ago called "The Nuns," and that refers to people who, when they're when they encounter religious surveys. scroll down to the bottom of the list of options and click none Uh, the nuns not the religiously disaffiliated so he in the nuns he writes this although retention for nuns started out poorly with only about a third of those who grew up with no religion staying disaffiliated as adults it has risen by nearly 30 points and today nearly two-thirds of people who are raised as nuns are still nuns in adulthood Uh, that's a bit wordy so let me just say that it you're from, in in the past, if you start out with no religion, you're more likely to not find it than someone who uh, starts out with religion. Uh, a third of those who grew up with no religion remaining disaffiliated. Today, in recent history, it's now two-thirds. So people who start out with you know, identifying themselves as having no religion are nearly, are twice as likely to not find it in their lives. Here's a um, a statistic from the General Social Survey. Uh, So religious affiliation is at an all-time high. Church membership, all-time low. In 1972, the General Social Survey found that only one in 20 people they surveyed had no religious affiliation. And today, that number has climbed to one in four. So just under 25% of people surveyed in this very big survey uh, identify themselves as they're religiously disaffiliated no religion and as time goes on that line just goes up and to the right for some slightly more updated stats there's a book a good book that just came out called the great Dechurching," and ryan burge is one of the authors uh, it's it's eye-opening it's somewhat apocalyptic and it's also very optimistic uh it it has there's a lot of data uh, to show that something is happening and this thing that's happening has momentum around deconstruction. And uh, a thing that I found very comforting and very optimistic is that the data also shows that the key to changing the trend has a lot to do with how the people of God conduct themselves with those who are deconstructing. And actually, when something else changes there, uh, the results also change. So, I just wanted to set the table, as it were, with some some facts and figures uh, before we get into uh, other ideas. But Another in introductory clarification I want to make is that I'm uh, I'll be using the phrase deconstruction tonight, but I want to uh, qualify that a bit and say that uh, in my mind I, I've found it helpful to think about deconstruction as happening on two lanes or or in two types: soft deconstruction and hard deconstruction. Uh, so I've I've introduced that those terms as a way to um talk to specify exactly what we're talking about because deconstruction is not a bad thing and actually if you're if you never deconstruct anything you are in trouble uh, but there is part of the dialogue that we need to that, that is a, a different beast uh, and so I'm trying to get to some of that with by saying there's soft deconstruction and hard deconstruction so what do I mean by that uh, according to according to Andy Patton soft deconstruction Is the examination of one's view of reality in order to set aside unrealities and walk further into the full truth of god's reality Uh, so it's you're you're wrestling with things and the end goal is to uh, believe and live more fully in light of the truth even when we have a good community early on in our lives and good teachers that lead us through the early stages of faith formation The things we receive and the things we build on that foundation are always a mixed bag. Um, We, in a sense, build a house of belief because we need a roof over our heads. But as we grow in that house, sometimes we realize that the walls we thought were load bearing crumble beneath the weight they're trying to carry. Sometimes the floor drops out. Um, Sometimes we grow up and realize we need to knock out an entire wing of the house because it was far too small. It was built in the wrong place. Uh, Sometimes on the journey toward maturity, uh, you realize that some of the answers that took you this far won't take you any further. They don't cut it. Uh, you begin to suspect that actually they were answers to the wrong questions uh, or, or some doubt is is introduced in that. So you have to go digging because it's hard to tell where the truth is. Reality is complicated and we are both finite and fallen. So again, always a mixed bag. Uh, so that kind of process is very human um, and and not evil. It's not bad. And I'm I'm so I'm trying to, I'll be critiquing some of the things that are gathered together under the label of deconstruction. So at the beginning, I'm trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Because that can even be a sign of life. Now, struggling with faith can indicate that there's something there important to struggle with. And and questions, even difficult questions, often come before very needed answers. You see that all the time with students who come to Labrie. Uh, You have to come to a certain place in your life to take three months off and and move to England and live with people in this weird but wonderful place. Uh, It's a transitional place and a place where people can ask difficult questions and find important answers. So that's a potted treatment of soft deconstruction. What do I mean when I say hard deconstruction? Uh, My my definition here is that hard deconstruction is the, the disassembly of one's faith in order to abandon the pieces or use them to rebuild something that no longer resembles traditional Christianity. So there's a bit of a, the difference between these two is there's kind of the means is somewhat different and the end is different. Uh, I'm not trying to, um, sometimes people who are in the midst of a season of hard deconstruction aren't trying to get back into Christianity. They're looking to get rid of it. And this kind of deconstruction can have a momentum of its own. You know, once you turn those engines on, it's they it can be hard to shut off. Um, so if soft deconstruction is a process that's intent on shedding false realities and moving deeper into Christian truth, hard deconstruction locates the the falseness inside Christianity and sets out to determine, to determine what you know if any pieces of Christianity can be saved from the wreckage. And it's kind of become a euphemism for deconversion, um, for some. Deconstruction equals deconversion, which is not can be fair, isn't always fair. So all of this begs the question what do we do when we find ourselves in a period of deconstruction or someone we love? And and that's basically the topic of the lecture tonight. That question What do we do when we either ourselves enter a period of hard deconstruction or or someone we we watch someone we love do that? um, which isn't easy. You know it's it's hard to go through the painful and turbulent and uncertain process of deconstruction ourselves. It's also there's a there's a different and very sharp kind of pain that comes when we watch someone we love experience that. And given the title of this lecture, maybe some of you who decided to come tonight are are right there, and you really need some some light to be shed on it. Um, so on on top of that, just coming back to this question, what do we do? Uh, like the old adage about the drowning person reminds us sometimes when you jump in the water and try to help you can make things worse sometimes your well-intended advice um only only serves to deepen what's going on and your best efforts go awry and you have these important conversations that you realize oh that just made it all worse but i don't know how so the catch to loving someone and helping someone who's deconstructing uh, is that there? There just isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to the problems they're facing. So that is that is not on offer tonight. <laughs> uh, and sometimes nothing helps at all. Seemingly nothing helps at all. And when I think about uh, my friends and loved ones who who have deconstructed their faith or who are deconstructing their faith, honestly, I don't know if I've said or done much to to halt the deconstruction. And sometimes, rather, despite my best efforts, my prayers, my worry, uh, the momentum of what's happening with them just follows its own gravity onward like a landslide. But that doesn't mean there isn't anything to say. So for the rest of the lecture, I'd like to address that point. Um, I'm going to lay out a few ideas that can act as a framework that can hopefully guide our thinking and our words and our prayers and our actions around the topic of deconstruction. So that's, that's where we're going. It's not a formula, but it is a framework. And it's a framework built of uh, a handful of very important big ideas. So let's jump in. First very important big idea to remember. Uh, God is the one that changes people, not you. Uh, especially in our most difficult conversations, that, that's a that's an important thing to remember, that the Holy Spirit is the great counselor who leads people into all truth. And God's work in people's lives can be, um, it can ha- it can take place in brief and intense moments of insight. And certainly you see a lot of that at Labrie. Uh, and it can also take place in long, slow revelations that take decades to come to fruition. And you see a lot of that at Lebrie too. Uh, so we shouldn't assume, just because we're having a powerful experience about someone else's powerful experience, we know where any person's story is headed. Uh, nor uh, should we imagine the journey that they will take to get there um, even in, despite that it's it's natural to want to help the people we love as they go through their hard times uh, but any conversation we have with them we have to bear in mind that it takes place in the larger context of God's care for his creatures you know God God made and loves the our loved ones more than we do that's an important point to get right Uh, the person you're worrying about and fretting over god loves them more has has uh, has more pure affections for them more pure desire uh, for them to embrace him and step into his reality and a clearer vision for the areas where they're not doing that and ultimately god is responsible for clearing away the error from their thinking and the sin from their lives not you However, we are invited to play a role in speaking and demonstrating the truth in our words and actions. And no small part of that is simply to do no harm to our fellow creatures for whom Christ died. And and sadly, so many conversations with people who are deconstructing fall short of that goal. Uh, Any any conversation or idea or, or moral intuition or reasoned argument might or might not be just one part of God's ongoing work of redemption in that person's life. Yeah, or it might not. Uh, God, God moves in mysterious ways, as the cliche says. Uh, it's a strange dance. He dances with us. And sometimes it's hard to see which which way our dancing partner wants to take us. So it requires humility. Um, however, even though deconstruction and loving someone who is deconstructing is distressing and can be quite acutely distressing Christians should be people who are able to trust God enough to believe that to have real faith that even if you feel you can't save the ones you love God can and that that should not be an idle thought that should be a a, a rock you can hold on to so that's the first idea remember that God changes people the second idea Remember that the person in front of you is made in the image of God. Every Christian relationship and instance of communication should be built on on the bedrock of the image of God, which reminds us that all persons have been imbued with dignity by God himself. And so it's it's on us to not subject them to indignity in our minds or our words or our actions. And the the image of God reminds us that God is committed to the well being of our conversation partner or the person we're praying for, the person we're um, loving worriedly, uh, and we have to also be likewise committed to that. And it reminds us that uh, that person is a whole person, is not just the sum of their ideas or the things that happen to be ha- happening to them in a difficult season of their life. And it should it should humble us. It should inspire us. It's one of those rich ideas inside of Christianity. That is uh, can be powerfully changing on, on every aspect of our lives. So it humbles us because God's image is, is present in ourselves and it's marred in ourselves because we live in a fallen world. And it should inspire us because everyone, you know, even that difficult person we're talking to, bears God's likeness and is the object of his affection at every moment in their life uh, and benefits from his care always, even if they give him no thanks. And John Calvin wrote beautifully of this idea of the the way humanity bears the image of God. He writes, we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them, which covers and removes their faults, and by its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. So let me read that again, because it's stuff John Calvin's saying is probably more important than whatever I have to contribute. He writes, we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men but to look to the image of God in them, which covers and removes their faults and by its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. I was at a Labrie conference in Minnesota years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and uh, it was a big big auditorium, 500 people, and Jaron Bars was giving a lecture, and he quoted this quote from John Calvin. Um, Jerem, what used to be a worker at the English debris and then left England and moved to St. Louis to teach at Covenant Seminary for a long time. Um, and, but anyway, he he was he was making a similar point to the, the one I'm making right now. And after his lecture in the Q and A, someone challenged him on it and said, "I he- I hear you, but what about the really repugnant people? You know, is is what Calvin is saying?" That we are that their even their beauty is and dignity is to allure us to love and embrace them. What about the really repugnant people? How do we deal with them? And I thought, well, good question, lady. That's what you know. What's this guy going to do with this stumper? You know, and five hundred pairs of eyes turn back to Jerem at the front of the room, and he's just he's just crying. Tears are just rolling down his face, and he says, "There are no such people." And it was just deeply impactful because I thought. I think he, I think this guy really believes it. Um, Could it be true that there are no repugnant people, but only people in whom the image of God, this beautiful image of God is both present and marred? Which leads me to my next point. Uh, When we're talking to people, uh, we we would do well to remember that we are also fools. Uh, anyone who wants to lead someone else to the truth should take a deep breath and remind themselves that they have also treasured distortions of the good in their lives. Uh, we all have blind spots and strongholds of falsehood that we fiercely guard and protect. Uh, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, not only in our behavior, uh, but even, even in our thinking. And we'll, we'll all be subjected to the lifelong process of refining our ideas and removing the dross from our convictions. Uh, we, we do well to remember Jesus's sobering words for those who would be judges. Uh, with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So why do you see, see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And I take this to mean that even when we see our fellow image bearer's sin very clearly, and I'm not saying that we don't, Do that sometimes Uh, we should be more grieved and more focused on and more repentant over our own so again i'm just trying to build a framework for um, some tools in the toolbox or some convictions that we should hold dearly as we move into these conversations Um, here's another one do your best to find out what's driving the deconstruction so even if there's a, a headlining factor that's driving this season of deconstruction the complete picture can never be boiled down to just one thing that's an important thing for us to remember uh and, and there often is a headlining factor uh i can't be a christian because you know of these scandals in the news i can't be a christian because of how my pastor treated me I can't be a christian because um my mom was a christian i can i just can't follow that form of life uh that's the tip of an iceberg that it is very, much more complex under the surface. Belief isn't binary, but it shifts, it ebbs and flows in response to a host of internal and external factors. So it's good to take some time to slow down and listen and try to figure out what's what's behind it all. What's the story? What's that complicated process? Um, <clears throat> some good advice. Don't assume they're deconstructing because they want to sin or because it's hip. And those are both things that I've heard as explanations for the current rising pattern of deconstruction. Don't say that to anyone. Uh, it's foolish, and it, it will get you nowhere. It's 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 bad advice. Find another path in your conversations. Uh, at least if you want to say anything that the person you're talking to is actually going to be able to listen to, actually willing to hear. So sometimes it is, a season of deconstruction is kicked off by bad experiences with Christians or a, a nasty theological question that won't go away, um, or a social milieu that finds Christianity implausible or ridiculous. So a hundred things can happen when the plausibility web that has kept us stable in our faith begins begins to shake. Uh, and if you're listening and you're, you're in the middle of your own season of deconstruction, I would just say try to sort through your doubts and give them names, and write about them. Um, figure out what your wounds are, how and how they play in, and what misgivings have drawn you to this point, and try to just put little stickers on things inside yourself with labels, because um, everyone's experience is different, and it takes time to learn the particular motivations and considerations and shifting plausibilities that have moved any one person uh, toward deconstruction. So, how are we going to be become better at? finding those answers so the the in in four words the answer is get better at listening that's my next point spend an hour listening a metaphorical hour francis schaefer spent his days talking with people from all walks of life of course that came to his home in switzerland and he used to say uh that if he had an hour to speak with someone he'd spend 55 minutes listening and asking questions so that he could say something of actual value in the last five um, direct conversations about deconstruction can can get intense. They can get heated, especially in a um, if there's wounds in the relationship, or just generally in our. We live in a very polarized age. Uh, so why not spend more time listening? What would happen if you made Schaefer's fifty-five-five rule your watchword? What would happen if you could? Gather together your curiosity and channel it into questions. Even if you think, you know, you've got it nailed down. This is exactly what's happening with this person. You know, these are the things you're failing to see. Let me show you. What would happen when you feel an answer or a rebuttal burning inside you? If you just prohibited yourself from interrupting in order to talk over that person um, and just ask a question or listen carefully or repeat their point back to them and ask them if you've understood it correctly. Uh, And then if you, if they say, no, you haven't listen again, you know, go back to step one, listen again, ask questions and try to repeat their point until you can say their own ideas back to them better than they said it the first time until you're, you're helping them articulate their own position. What would happen in that person's mind and in their body when it came time for you to say something? Um, You might find if you go through that process, you'll have more access to being heard. So in general, I would just say, as you listen, be gentle. Be gentle with doubters. I remember that prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah: a bruised reed, he will not break; a faintly burning wick, he will not snuff out. When is the last time you heard you saw that on a church banner? That's not one of those headlining and victorious ideas in the Bible. But that when Isaiah is presenting the Savior. Um, to his contemporaries and to the church throughout time, that is one of the the headlining descriptions of what this savior, God in flesh, will be like. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. And healing and patience and gentleness received inside the Christian community can do a lot to balance out the wounds that those who are deconstructing have also received inside the Christian community. So listening is not just information gathering. Listening can be a work of healing It's difficult to understate or to overstate how powerful it can be. And flip side of that is as you listen, you're probably going to have to get better at tolerating the questions. So it's a double skill, two skills that need to grow in tandem. And when people deconstruct their faith, they can start to ask very uncomfortable questions and that you or your community finds troubling. And yeah, this is, is is especially true if they start saying things you know quote quote unquote we don't say here or you know that's questioning dearly held doctrines or ideas, uh, consuming the wrong sorts of podcasts, reading the wrong sorts of books. Uh, suddenly, the person who's in the middle of a crisis can feel like there's this dark mark floating about uh, above their head and their whole community flees away from it. you know the very people they need, kindness and listening and care and and also challenge loving challenge from um suddenly stay away from them but unhurried and gentle space in which the deconstructing person can ask their questions can be hard to come by Um, it takes a christian community with big arms and a lot of patience to beat the curve many communities find it easier to exile the questioner than deal with the questions because they can't live with the dissonance and the the discomfort that those questions are are bringing to them, uh, we all tend toward the status quo, because the status quo is, um, you know, we need rhythms to life. And sometimes when people start to disrupt that, it can it can feel very personal. Uh, but that's exactly what people in the midst of a season of deconstruction are doing, and they need someone to meet them there. Um, So, if someone you love is asking hard questions, if you can, if you have the strength and the support, prayerfully push yourself to tolerate those questions, even if they make you uncomfortable. Uh, There there is a place for answers, Uh, but I would urge you also not to rush to dole out answers. And it can be good for your own faith and your faithfulness to be stretched into trusting God with another person's doubts. I've learned so much and grown so much by taking someone else's doubts seriously and wrestling with them as if they were my own. Uh, it's it's good to learn things. Uh, the Bible's full of doubters, and God didn't blast them from the face of the earth. He he condescended. He accommodated those doubts and wrestled with them like, like Jacob or like Job. He spoke to them from the whirlwind, and what what he gave them, what he gave Job, was not more answers but more questions until he felt that he was answered or like Moses I'm just going through some of the some famous doubters uh, he let them see his glory as it passed them by or, or Elijah he spoke to them in a still small voice at the moment of their greatest despair and so the common thread in all those stories is that God meets his people among amongst the wreckage of their days and their life and their questions and their needs and their anger and their uncertainty. And through the through encountering God in those moments, those very things become doorways through which they gained more insight, more access, more reality. Or think of Jesus. How did Jesus handle questions? Uh, if you survey the Gospels, it's it's tough to miss the fact that he often leads people more deeply into their questions, and both the doubts and the insights um, that they found there. Think of the proverbial doubting Thomas. Uh, after Jesus dies, Thomas says, I will never believe this unless I can stick my finger in his wounds, which you have to imagine was quite a hyperbole. Uh, it was the same as saying, this is ridiculous. But then there among them, Jesus appears and behold, there are his wounds. And he makes eye contact with Thomas and says, come over here. We're doing this. There's my wound. Get out your finger. Uh, what an utterly and uh, unexpected and ridiculous story it really is that God, the master of the universe, would take on flesh, would die, would rise, and then have this interaction, this custom-tailored interaction with one of his friends wow. who was struggling, involving putting his finger inside the wound that killed him. And it's, it's a story that's completely illuminating uh, of, about the utter softness and severity with which God deals with us. I find it very challenging and very comforting or think about and just continuing to reflect on Jesus and his treatment of doubters. He knew that his 12 friends are about to abandon him right before he died. And he told them, uh, he let the apostles deny him in his moment of greatest need. And then um, think of Peter denies him three times on the night of Jesus's death. And then when Jesus returns, he has this special custom tailored conversation with the heartbroken Peter at the end of the gospel of John on the beach, just two of them. It's in the wake of Peter's, the, the greatest personal failure of Peter's life. He He's destroyed. And what does Jesus say? Shame on you. You told me you'd never leave me. How could you, you know, what happened? He doesn't say that. He may, he asks him a question and he, and he forces him to answer it. It's very uncomfortable. He says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And then Jesus does it again. Do you love me? And he makes him say again and again, three times, which three affirmations of his love to match the three denials. So suddenly in this connection, Jesus is meeting him in his doubt, in his crisis. And this moment of his greatest failure becomes a new foundation on which Peter's confidence in how the Lord feels about him and the Lord's commitment to him is built. And all this happens through the the doorway of questions. And I mean, if we're thinking about Jesus, I think you have to add, God let his precious doubters kill him while he prayed for them, you know, in the midst of the act because they didn't know what they were doing and because they were so small. And that is what it's like to take the journey of identity with the living God. It's, it's a space where nothing, finally, nothing less than absolute absolute reality is tolerated. But God knows that our road to reality is long and it's and it's circuitous. And it has many switchbacks along the way, and he he walks next to us, and he brings questions, and and insights because he is kind. So in all our thoughts and actions, and especially those um, with those we love, whom are struggling, we should we should look to Jesus, and how he treated people to be humbled and be comforted, and challenged, and and is is it's from that position that we can that being all of the things i just said uh, that we can become ready to challenge so that's we're kind of making a pivot in the lecture moving on to we've we've been very listening receptive asking questions establishing for ourselves our own humility and now we're going to move on we're going to turn the corner to how to how to give a word back how to challenge um so i i'm sure you've noticed i've been cham- championing A somewhat atypical in certain Christian circles approach, uh, which is a uh, gentle and humble and nuanced approach to addressing deconstruction. I've said, listen and pray and wait and and ask questions and be generous and build those skills and be humble. Uh, And I think this is all, it's all, it's the exact right place to begin because if we're going to overcome the world's ways of making war, we have, we're going to have to need more, more spiritual firepower, but not the kind that the world recognizes. Um, we have to master the difficult task of loving and conversing and praying for those with whom we disagree. And that takes a lot of patience and kindness and, and love and laughter and time and wisdom and grace and humility. Um, but though gentleness and humility are, are their foundational skills, they're not all there is to say. And, and, and there's no template as we move into how to challenge, there's no template for how to do that. Uh I, I'm thinking about this idea. I've been thinking about how Jesus healed people. Uh there was there was no template, no formula for, for doing that. You never knew what you were going to get when you came to Jesus for healing. You might get your sins forgiven. And you know, you're thinking, what? I didn't, that's not what I want, I want to walk um, he could heal from a distance. He could, he he could heal with a touch. He could heal without consent that time he was in the crowd. And the lady, um, knows that if she just touches his garment, then he, he feels something has changed. Uh, and there was that one time he makes mud spit and puts it on the guy's eyes. That's just such a bizarre story. Uh, there's, there's no formula Either for how we are to channel His healing power into our times and our places and our relationships, but again, that doesn't mean there's nothing to be said. So I'm going to tell a few quick stories because uh, I, uh, it's getting late. So these are, this is, this will pep you up. Uh, there are libré stories. How do you challenge libré workers work uh, and talk and live beside people who are asking very difficult questions? Labrie tends to have a reputation, mostly uh, descending from the Schaeffers of gentleness, humility, of listening, you know, being a safe space for questions, and challenging. Uh, one Labrie worker who was uh, a friend who has appeared here many times, uh, here being where you are, uh, but encountered the Schaeffers at the Swiss Labrie, told me once he hit a student over the head with a Bible, full on, knocked him over. And then that student became a Christian uh, that there was something happening there uh, in that very particular moment that a challenge was required. And this Labris worker had the perfect insight given his relationship with this person, this guy needs to get hit upside the head with the Bible. And the student ran out of the room and prayed all night and became a Christian. Uh, there's another story of a, a worker who had a had a um a student come to him, she disclosed her her story. It was a very difficult story, and she just went on and on de- detailing it all uh, in the context of this very safe and you know sacred student tutor relationship. And his response was, "I think you are a selfish expletive." And by the way, she told me this story, and. She changed her life. She said, when she was telling me and Lindsay that years ago, uh, she's a dear friend now. Uh, she said that was exactly what I needed to hear. Here's another story from that same worker, different student. Uh, years ago, this worker uh, had had someone. he was talking to a student, came to him, and right away knew this student had there's there's something here about anger this person has an anger problem and he is not ready to hear it so that he didn't he had this insight but didn't say it and then that student came in and out of Labrie over the next 10 years and at the end of that decade the worker was chatting with the student again and realized he's ready to hear it now and then told him I think you have a problem with anger I think you've always had a problem with anger and again exactly what he needed to hear so There's no formula. You'll find in no apologetics book, hit target overhead with Bible uh, to induce conversion. That's not going to happen. Nor will you hear name calling. um, And nor is there a precise year amount to delay an important insight for someone. But it's just, it's a matter of, it's a matter of prayer. It's a matter of the spirit. It's a matter of maturity. Um, for if, if you want to explore that idea more, Jim, Paul has a fantastic lecture. I think it's something like passive activity and personal relationships. It's, it's a wonderful lecture. It's on the Libri Ideas Library, passive activity and personal relationships. Okay. That's a preamble. When you challenge, challenge with patience. Uh, Though we should take off our shoes before we go tromping around in the minds and lives and attitudes of our fellow image bearers. Um, a Christian conversation isn't, it's not all about listening and it's not all about questions because having an opinion is not the same thing as knowing the truth. So, there there is a place for challenge, but it's got to be a certain kind of challenge. Uh, God's reality, though though it surpasses us, it's not infinitely malleable. It's not a ball of clay. You can be wrong about things and we are designed to help lead one another to the truth. Um, so what does it mean to challenge with wisdom and strength, but without fear and violence? What would it mean to forswear harshness for firm strength, uh, which can accomplish, which can accomplish everything that harshness can accomplish, but without the damage. What would it mean for you if when you're moving towards a challenge, if you built bridges from truths, people already loved, uh, so that they could walk across them and attain to the truths that they didn't love yet. And they, I'm just asking a kind of a series of questions to shake shake loose our thinking. What would it take for you to discern which hills to die on? And then which crazy comments just to completely let slide? We're just going to not swing at that pitch. And there it goes. Uh, so what if you saw your role as sowing conversational seeds with no need to harvest them, sometimes that's that's called for. Sometimes that's appropriate. Um, so the art of challenging is hard to master, as hard as the art of listening. But if we're going to speak truth in love, it's something that we have to master, because sometimes you, you know, you and not another person, but you and you only have come to a, a certain moment in a certain relationship for a reason, uh, and this t- this moment may have been designed by God, for a reason. And true spirituality involves a lot of waiting and prayer, and it also involves acting because God made us agents who are able to cause things to happen. There's that um, wonderful bit in early Genesis when God brings the animals to Adam to see what he would name them, and then whatever Adam names them, that is what they're called. So, there's God is inviting people um, inviting us into this dance where there's, he ha, he has made an unfinished creation that he could easily finish. And, but instead of doing that, he makes an image. He makes a being in his own image and invites him to dance, do the dance of creation. Sometimes we tap God on the shoulder and step in with creation and we do the dance. Uh, so God made us to be agents. So that idea of passive activity, this is a, a kind of weird phrase that descends from the Schaefer's, uh, and is part of the the course that they charted Lebrion on, is passive activity to uh, separate that idea from opposing ideas on either side. Either active activity, in which you just have an idea and you do it. You have, you, you know, everything depends on you. Cook up your clever ideas and follow them to their own ends. That's one error passive activity is trying to keep us from. The other side is passive passivity, uh, which gives up this part of being human that we we must not give up, that God made us to cause things to happen, that he's redeeming the world and he's redeeming the world through us. And that also plays out in our words and thoughts and prayers and actions uh, with the people we love whose faith is in a storm. So, how do you do that? Uh, Well, I, I would say it's important to pray. Uh, part of being an agent is praying um, because we're we are we are in the image of God uh, so our our action our actions and our our agency should be in in line with his and we can break people by demanding that their lives and their hearts and their attitudes transform on our schedule and and God designed this world so that w- his creations, uh, his his human beings are made to draw each other closer to the closer to the truth uh, but sometimes all you can do along that line is just pray and wait uh, and the waiting allows time for your attitudes to change also and it, it may not be the circumstances or the other person's attitudes that needs to change first but the pers- your own perspective you may need to learn something or you may need to be denied something and that's what it means to be human uh, a creature who's not independent, but who's who's dependent on God in all ways, at all points. And deconstruction and reconstruction aren't processes that play out inside of one storm a year. We can think of them as playing out on a decade timeline. And a lot can happen in a decade. And we don't always understand the forces that are making it happen, even when they're happening to us. You know, the story of a life unfurls slowly. Um, to make it to the end, Without doing damage or minimizing damage we do to one another, we're going to have to learn to pray instead of rushing forward in action. Uh, so that's that's I suppose another piece of piece of this framework around challenge. Uh, sometimes we first need to challenge ourselves to pray and wait because the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and he's the he's the good counselor. And we can remember Psalm one hundred twenty seven. Unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers work in vain. Uh, so sometimes it does involve waiting, and prayer and waiting can hold us back from rushing forward in our own strength to see what kind of house the Lord would would want to build. So here's another piece of, of the framework of challenge. I would urge you uh, not to excommunicate the deconstructor. Um, if you can muster the maturity and the forbearance and the patience, and, and keeping in mind everything I said about how hard that is, uh, Try not to excommunicate those who are deconstructing. Uh, So before unpacking that point, I want to just give a disclaimer, because sometimes that is exactly what you need to do. Uh, That advice is not right for everyone at every time. In situations of abuse or violence, uh, whether whether it's physical or not, um, violence comes in many kinds, or coercive power structures that have been activated and are damaging people, a uh, separation can be a step that needs to be taken. Uh, whether it's the deconstructor who needs to take themselves out of their community to protect themselves or the community that needs to put up a boundary. it that is There are many situations where that is a necessary but painful step. But I'm urging that that step shouldn't be easily taken. I would want to insert a big pause in the chain of conclusions and reactions that would lead there. Uh, If you can, don't drive them out. If they lose your voice and the voice of other people of faith in their social plausibility structures, uh, they will lose a vital piece of the thing that may keep them inside the Christian story in the long run. Um, And and also, you need to maybe learn to live with the tension of disagreement too, because that's what life on this side of the fault is like. And the point of a Christian, the main job of of a Christian community is not to... Uh, make everything consensus it's not our job to zero out all the tension in our communities by enforcing conformity on them because we don't know what end god is leading all this towards Uh, so again it's it can be very salutary very very healthy to hold our own humility in both hands um and just remember that we we've all fallen short and uh perhaps you know though though deconstruction it can be a um a sin that causes a lot of visible and visceral tension there there's in every person in every community has uh, other sins and maybe those sins just are shrugged at or laughed at or celebrated Uh, so we're we are all in in no position that's that's any different in in some ways So, if you can, I guess my point here is just if you can find a way to integrate their questions and doubts as you walk into the truth together across a span of years, if you can find a way to listen, not cast them out, if you can find a way to joke about the separate paths your lives and your thinking have taken, um, that can be very good. Humor can heal a uh, hundred wounds of the soul and save our communities from allowing those cracks to grow into to fractures and splits. Uh, and that doesn't mean you stop taking things seriously. It just means that our theological disagreements don't always have to be storm clouds and thunder. We can laugh. And the questions of deconstruction are important and they're serious. And there is a lot of life that you can share outside their boundaries. So you can open the box together, get into all the mess, close the box, set it aside, and live life together. And that's not to say we we pretend that box doesn't exist and we'll never open it again. but we also know that there's a lot more that we share that isn't in that box, that deconstruction box. So you could excommunicate them. and I, I'm this whole point is informed by stories I've heard from loved ones and on on both sides pastor friends who just are dealing with the tension of um, vocal deconstructing communities in their in their church. Uh, and yeah, you, you could excommunicate them, but why would you throw away your most powerful tool for influencing them? And why not instead? Sometimes it is appropriate to instead pay the cost of living in the tension rather than passing that cost onto the excommunicated person, because that is that is in a sense the Christian life. I'm thinking of Paul's words in Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul, who experienced a lot of opposition and who wrestled with ideas a lot and experienced a lot of suffering, saw that as filling up what is unfinished and finishing what is unfinished in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which puts us on a whole different trajectory than, oh, that person's rocking the boat. We need to get him out of here. Um, I gave that person answers and it wasn't good enough and we're done here. Uh, because the church is the body of Christ, and what happens to the body of Christ, it gets broken for the life of others, and often that's how it works. And the kingdom of God often advances by the greatening of spirit that happens in God's people as their long suffering flows into and transforms a hurting world. Uh, for some reason, that has been part of God's strategy. But this is the last thing I have to say. Uh, if if you love someone. Who is deconstructing? You do well to try to make your life a plausibility structure. Uh, a plaus- plausibility structure. If you are curious about that bizarre phrase, go back and listen to deconversion part one. I go into what that means, and and it really just means um, plausibility is the believableness of things, and there's <clears throat> there's lots of factors that influence plausibility, and sometimes, like a river uh, that flow has to flow around a rock that is just so stable and solid that the river, the water can't move it. Um, we have these, we meet these people who become plausibility structures. Um, I I can never believe this because that other person believed that, or, you know, didn't believe that and their life is so beautiful. Um, and, and I have to reckon with that. So if you're worried about someone who's leaving Christianity, sometimes the best thing you can do for them isn't sit them down with an intervention and a, a host of answers, but to, is to live a beautiful life. And when your life is full of goodness and beauty and truth, that is a challenge, even if no words are involved. Because when someone is kind to us, we want to believe them and believe in them. That's the effect of, of full of fullness, um, goodness and richness and, and beauty. It draws us like a magnet. And when we experience goodness, you know, anywhere we find it, whether it's in the pages of a book, or a movie, or a well cooked meal, after a hungry day, or a cup of tea, uh, that goodness carves a place for itself inside us, and there's a there's almost an irresistible compulsion to respond to it with welcome and relief. And I think it, I, while I was at Labrie, I thought a lot about what what is with this place, you know, why why do you see so many transformations? I think that's part of it. It's that it the life of Labri. very intense it's very integrated it's very overlapping you know you argue with people at lunch and then you give them a ride on the day off and then you brush your teeth next to them in the bathroom and it's it's just very powerful and slowly these little goodnesses carve carve a place for um themselves in us your surround it's all happening in this beautiful place in a beautiful house. So both religious and non-religious people all look toward the West when the sunset catches their eye. And the religious watchers know that there's someone to thank. uh, But but everyone with a bit of sensitivity feels something tugging at them, uh, even if they only attribute it to molecules of dust. It's a challenge. So there's lots of ways to challenge. Some of them don't include words. Uh, So if people are leaving the faith because they've encountered a more beautiful way to live elsewhere, it might be because the Christian church has failed to live up to its own ideas, which, you know, it should be embodying a beautiful way to live and a true way to live because God is good and true and beautiful. And how can we understand those things apart from him and his His image bearers on earth? You know, the, the church and who's those, uh, the church, the people of God are bearers of his image who are, you know, hopefully becoming more clarified image bearers, um, less marred if his beauty and his truth is not on display there, where what what are we what are we doing? What are we doing with all our time and all our sermons? Uh, so I would just say, do do what you can to make your life a plausibility structure. You know, show hospitality to people, live with them, think about them, worry for them. Um, when the Lord brings people into my life, we're in a season of hard deconstruction. My prayer is that yes, they they would find some truth in things I say or things that Lindsay says. Uh, but also that our relationship, uh, or the things that they observe in my life or the life of my family, might be part of the rich feast that God is laying before them, which is very multifaceted and not only rationalistic, uh, as He challenges them and comforts them, and allures them into His goodness and His reality. So I've said a lot there. Um, we we are. It's now a choose your own adventure. Wherever we go from here, is up to you. Let's have some time for Q and A.
2: Thank you, Andy.
3: Lots of lots of very good things to, to talk about. Um, I thought I might just just lead us off here, and then we'll, we'll you know, turn turn to the rest. Um, I was thinking about you know we used this this example of, of you know Schaefer talking about listening and, and asking questions for fifty five minutes and talking for five, and I was thinking about in you know particular in in churches or in, you know, small groups or something like that, where actually you you are trying to um, there, there is a responsibility to actually be, you know, teaching and uh, and not just dealing with questions and other things, I guess, to, to put it, you know, flatly, there's other things also that we need to do in our good because other people in the room also have things or, or want to build on their faith. And, uh, and, uh, and this may sound like a, harsh thing to say but I think we all have been in situations where maybe one person has a really uh, really strong question and it can kind of dominate a whole situation and and it can it can be frustrating Mm -hmm. genuinely because you're wanting to talk about one thing oh we're we're always dealing with those so and you made the great point of you know that it that it uh, we don't want to excommunicate we want to create these spaces so I was thinking you know particularly not so much in the like you have one friend and you're you're at a having a cup of coffee for an hour but when you're in spaces that have multiple responsibilities and multiple needs or in churches, you know, and how have you seen, or have you heard about, like, how do you create that space? Do you need to channel it? Or is it, should it be welcome all the time to uh, ask those questions? Hopefully my question makes some sense there.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just hearing you question Schaefer, which Joe, we did not do.
2: <laughs> <Exactly>.
1: um, <laughs> uh, let, let me. Um, Restate your question, and then maybe you can tell me if I've got it or not. Uh, well, w- when you were saying that, it made me think, uh, as a Labrie worker, which was very foundational to, I don't know how I approach all this, Labrie workers are kind of spoiled for doing what I'm saying to do, because yeah. people come to Labrie uh, for, for a purpose, they're kind of a captive audience, uh, and then you sit down every day at lunch for an hour and a half, and you talk about something, and you've got to fill the time, and so you you kind of build a narrative arc into the discussion. You can listen, and um, it's a very intentional space. And since leaving Labrie, I have been, I've learned, I've re- been refreshed in my understanding that l- the world is not like that. Uh, the world is busy, and um, chances to have serious discussions like that are f- much fewer and far between and people don't even want to do that so often um you know people you you do get people in a certain stage at libri uh, they've they've it's a self-selecting community of people who have opted into the experience of libri uh, and yeah i suppose in quote unquote real life neo non-libri life or in the life of a church the intensity knob is turned down and so probably the time knob gets turned up uh, a, a little bit more living with people. Um, I suppose there's ways to be intentional about designing your life and your relationships in such a way that there are those opportunities, those spaces between um, busy things where we can have some yeah, intentional time together. Uh, in Nashville, Lindsay and I started our weekly dinner night you know, and, and, and it just turned into this wonderful thing people came over Sunday and it was, kind of our little pocket of libri after we left. Uh, and it, it was very meaningful for people. And sometimes you just played games or laughed or sang songs, or, you know, we did a couple sharing nights. Uh, and sometimes we'd find our way into, into these deep conversations where somebody's has something they have to share, or, um, you know, you just find your way in as, as people do. So I guess that's one thing that I'd say is it's not the same, but there's ways you can build, um, your life in such a way that some of the forces that's that work against that are are somewhat held at bay in in certain times and places um there's another thing that you asked that i, I think you're asking like well it's fine to, it's fine to talk about like giving space for questions and listening but what about the sometimes people have questions that the re- the rest of the group doesn't want to deal with or you know isn't ready for or you know they kind of take hostage uh so it's one thing to do that at a at a lunch table which is specifically for that purpose is what were you asking about there or did and did I understand you
3: um, yeah no i'm trying to be like maybe uh, intentionally slightly provocative in that cuz in in the context of the talk you know we want we always have absolute patience but in re- in, in real life uh yeah you sometimes you do get you do get frustrated or you think we're we're trying to do something here, and and maybe it's, this isn't the time for questions. So I, I'm just acknowledging maybe what I'm trying to say is that uh, we don't always have, you know, we can't always press pause for an hour to take, you know, and and listen. And there's context, but in particular in the church, like yeah, just thinking. Well, where are the times where people can find this? You know, where where are how do you or maybe I'm just acknowledging that we need you. I think you have to be intentional to create those spaces because uh, you know Sunday morning probably isn't the moment where all that, that questions can come out um, and then you you know oh I went to the Bible study but no we're, we're studying the Bible and obviously that that's a maybe narrow way to look at your evening things but maybe not acknowledging that it, it, uh, it we can be fighting a genuine tension of uh, of needs uh, from different people and, and creating that space can sometimes be difficult and that to your point where we're, we're I like how the emphasis you put on on we need to build up the patience because it, it does need patience to to listen to someone or you you feel so much for them that you almost lose patience because you're you, you want them to be through this tension or or on the other side which can be really unhelpful to become impatient to someone you care for. Mm. Not that I've ever done that. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think it is. I think it is a skill set. It certainly is a skill set. And ev- everything I said about Libri remains true. But uh, in non-Libri life, there's, there's just opportunities are everywhere. We, we just bought our first house and we're living in a new city and getting to know our neighbors. And we see people all the time in this neighborhood. And, you know, we live, we've got somebody on the left, somebody on the right. And we can see into their windows and we, we bump into them in the backyard and talk over the fence. And there's just so many opportunities. Uh, flush with opportunities in, in some ways, more opportunities, because in my library life, I had a very intense experience with students for three months. And then we said goodbye. And I didn't see most of them ever again, but now I've you know paid a couple hundred thousand dollars for this plot of land. And so has my neighbor and we're not going anywhere. And mm-hmm. so we get to, we get to do this dance of life together and that will, it's a less intense experience but there's in yeah in other ways there's there's more opportunities because it's going to last a long time. Helpful,
3: thank you, thank you. let do not only widen those other questions that we have, and I'll Okay, okay. why don't we gather two, uh, two folks in the back? Yeah,
2: repeat it for the recording. That'd be great.
1: Okay, yeah. uh, <laughs> is in A has a relationship with two parties? Who have some tension in their relationship um so she's asking the question how, how do i deal with that i'm kind of in the middle um and it was uh, about this topic of of deconstruction so there there was some there was some drama in the past in in this story some difficulty uh and and maybe even that has left a crater a relational cra- crater so you're looking into that crater and saying how do we build a house again where this crater is now um i would say that that is that's a good question Uh, it's that's difficult if if, i don't know the particulars of the story but it sounds like there was some pain Uh, if if these parties can no longer communicate well and peacefully with each other to the point that you're asking this question it's not like they can just go out to coffee and work out all their differences um the first thing that's coming to mind, I m- might talk myself in around this answer, uh, but the first thing that's coming to mind is why do you think you need to build a house on that crater again, uh, and why do you think you need to now? Uh, I, I would, I, I guess I'd go back to one of the things that I started with is that the Lord changes people, so I, th- I think we can have a bit of prayer from loving distance. Uh, that trusting that the lord is active in this situation um conversations in a crater not the best place to have them you know we we want redemption in and healing in our broken relationships in general that is a, a noble and good cause um, but it's difficult to say what kind of timeline that plays out on and let's say that it's it's possible the those each party needs something uh good from not the other party but from other people and not the person they're, you know, had this drama with. Um, So, yeah, I I guess I'm just saying sometimes it just takes time and bringing people together at the wrong time isn't always helpful, even if it's well-intentioned. But you're asking, how do we get together when, when we get together? Is that, am I, am I getting that right? How, How do we communicate? How do I communicate with both parties? Yeah, again, I kind of feel this impulse to question whether that's your job, but and I'm I'm not saying you you think it is your job. Uh, I suppose the starting position would be faith that the, the Lord the Lord is the great counselor, and He will lead people into truth in His time, and you may you may be a part of that. Um, but to maybe give a more substantial po- point in a more helpful direction, um, I've found it very helpful to just think about how Jesus treated people. Uh, he could be very sharp with people unexpectedly sharp uh he could be very and uh, deeply and unexpectedly gentle and generous but okay. overall you know if if he is the visible image of the invisible god uh then the things that he's re- revealing about the heart of god towards doubters is is very um slow to anger and slow to wrath and for, forgiving at at the the slightest sign of repentance and giving the benefit of the doubt, and gentle, and loving, and um and I suppose if if you're talking about the party that's still a Christian, hopefully that should mean something for them, and hopefully that should be deeply convicting if they can see it uh, that they have fallen short of that, perhaps. Um, yeah, more than that, I don't, I don't know uh, without knowing more of the particulars of the story and their and their own individual. Uh, h- how they got to the crater, but I, w- I would also just say you know, sometimes it takes a long time to heal from things.
3: Yeah, just uh, to to share back your point as well, point uh, number two and part one, point two B. Uh, as I have in my notes, uh, the, uh, which we all know. I didn't even say it now that I referenced it. No, but I, I thought it was a very good point that you made that I have starred and bracketed just remind us that the people are not, like you said, the people are not the sum of their ideas or actions in this present situation or in the context of, of deconversion. And I feel like that, that's so often indicative. I feel like in these situations where something happened, it's like whatever the disagreement is, has, has somehow filled up the whole space as if that's the only thing there is to a relationship. Or that's the only it's it's it, it becomes outsized and the person is only in this context. You're, you're only really a person in this family if you're of faith as well. But just just the the reminder I feel like of people of, of you know is that the only thing you can see anymore, and if, yeah. if that, is, then that needs to be a real challenge to anybody. If that's if that's all you can see in the other person is this this deconversion narrative or what's happened there, but that is a helpful reminder to me of. of of, oh yeah that, that and that and therefore it's not the only thing you can talk about there's plenty of other things and then when you get in a situation where the only thing you can think of to talk about is what you disagree about you're you're obviously narrowing the sphere of life down in that in that point mm.
1: yeah. yeah yeah that's well said yeah in well said in subpoint you know section two sub point three for that. <laughs> Joel used to make fun of me all the time because he said my lectures were like a peeled egg on a luge.
3: <laughs> <Just> <laughs> straight,
1: straight and to the point.
3: We can unpack that metaphor later. Yeah,
1: there's a lot there. It's a deep metaphor. There
3: is. There is. Um, Marius, you had a question. I believe mean, you next. I and mean, then there's maybe one other one. Yeah. So yeah, my uh, question is really about
0: um, I have a situation back home where I have a uh, Colleague who is Lots of loud virus. All right. Yeah. So back home I have a colleague, who's uh, also a friend, who is kind of seeking into Christianity, um, but he has some weird views. Um, or I won't say weird, just he's made in English. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy called Machiavelli, and there are some people following him, and yeah, and he has read a lot, and so he gave me a bunch of books. Um, and he said that if you want to understand my view better from coming from this account kind of the books uh, that I made my view from. Um, so my question would really be, and, I, and we have another friend as well, who is also, has lost it and has um, left the Christian faith. Um, so we have these two different people. Right? So my question is, being uh, a married person, but also a father, so a small baby, and also working, not having the time, and I have a huge stack of books to read to <laughs> be able to listen to this guy. How do I prioritize? Because well, I have these two people, and then well, how do I pro- prioritize you to kind of uh, listen to and invest my time in? Because I don't have that much time. Uh, States, yeah. So that's kind of yeah. Question.
1: Thank you, and it's good to meet you, Marius. You're you're paired with Sophia now.
2: Yes, that's
1: right. Good to see you back there, and congratulations.
0: Thank
1: you, thank you. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't quite catch the two scenarios, so we're going to have to revisit that. But I can sympathize with being busy and a parent of young children, and all that stuff. Uh, Jim Paul gave me great advice, which I have passed on to many people. He said that no one flourishes, no parent of young children flourishes. Full stop. (laughs) I find that immensely relieving. (laughs) Yeah. So, but it only lasts like ten years. So you just buckle up. Yes. It. It. We are humans. Are limited. Mm -hmm. Now back to your question, Joel or Peter. Peter, when you spoke, it was like the voice of God resonated here in this room, so loud. Uh, What were those two scenarios? And you're asking like, how do I choose between how to how to prioritize or how to address this if i have to read 10 books
0: yeah yeah But uh, so uh, yeah so the uh, the two scenarios it's just that there are two people who, are, who both happen to be interested in philosophy they might have different um, um different interests in philosophy i i uh, i don't think that uh, the other guy has the same interest as, as my colleague um but yeah uh, so it was just about prioritization of how to um how to
3: prioritize and, and yeah he's given you one well, of your colleague essentially has given you uh books to read. he said if you want to understand my position yes read these and then, and then we can talk which in one sense is quite I hear you saying it's quite an open door to real conversation but it is yeah, a, so, yeah. but the but the 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 cost of opening that door is a lot of time. <laughs> And you're trying, you're trying to kind of weigh up, and you say even another relationship, but that that basic I mean, idea. Of, yeah, um, to be it. honest, I got the books
0: uh, like maybe four or five months ago, and I've only really, like read uh, maybe three or four pages of the one book. So from <laughs> 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 yeah. being being I just read the garbage there, and i think that I should re-engage with these yeah. books and read them. Uh, and also I have a plan to be with.
1: Yeah. Is that- yeah i i would just say uh just have him for a coffee or a beer and and tell him that giving books to people doesn't really ever work uh as a as an inveterate book giver i've given so many books to people so that i can be understood and we can talk uh another way to do that is just go talk yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: Or, or just read just
0: read the introduction the conclusion and the table of contents and then yeah, and then ask them ask them what stood out to them what, what what was the you know what was the really important part of this book for you because you know there was a lot in there so can you just help me out here give me the
1: <laughs> or just read the, read the <laughs> odyssey and the Iliad and that's all you need anyway
3: apply <laughs> to everything that's right yeah no, it, it is. It is. Are you want to understand? I think that's a good point of yeah, talking and, and asking someone, and or just acknowledging that. that I, I would love to read this or Also, maybe holding a stack of your books in front of them as well, and saying, "Yeah." <laughs> so, like, just,
1: just hold your baby in front of them and say, yeah. "Just diaper this creature while I read your books."
3: I mean, might be more fruitful to read one of those books together, wouldn't it? Then, like. You that is right. a, that is yeah, like then you read yeah. and then come back and have you know to just read read along together and in the same way that often it's most fruitful to kind of read the Bible with somebody
0: mm. you know, as opposed to some way much more um The other thing is you what you're listening for is why the ideas are attractive, not the ideas necessarily themselves, mm. and that yep. that's often a mistake we make is thinking that this idea is the thing that is important rather than what is driving this person to believe that idea. Which is, those are two separate things.
1: Yeah, that's true. If you wait long
0: enough, you don't have to read the book because the other thing becomes apparent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Is that Yeah, yeah. It's a really good. Uh, um,
1: just hold... But just hold on to Jim's advice. That's probably the best thing I've said all night.
3: Well, just I think just uh, kind of coming back to terms, we have, a, I think, an interesting question on uh, the chat uh, from Paul. He said, I'm not entirely happy with the term deconstruction, which has philosophical connotations with breaking down an analysis rather than complete abandoning of a concept. What is wrong with the word apostasy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Paul um to start with your last your the way you finish that, what's wrong with the word apostasy is it, it's a very accusatory word. you know it's like um maybe better for internal use than external use. Uh, the backstory of the word deconstruction and how it came to be related to deconversion and questioning the faith, at least the backstory that I understand Um, there's, there's probably some history of English literature, criticism and Derrida stream there. Um, But I think you can't tell the story of how the term deconstruction is used now without talking about the legacy of Richard Rohr, who is a um, progressive Franciscan Catholic. Uh, who's been very influential, deeply influential on the uh, the deconstruction community? Uh, he's got a book called Falling Up, and he lays he lays down his kind of Uber story of human growth. And it starts with and and it's not original to him, but he's a real popularizer of it in this community. Uh, it starts with the construction phase, and the construction phase is uh, basically you you just inherit what your parents believe. Because humans need solid ground um, to grow, and that's a good thing. Uh, but eventually, to grow, you have to outgrow that. So, the second phase is deconstruction, where you tear down what, you're, what you were given by society, or by your parents, or by your models. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're not growing. So, you have to tear it down, and you have to look, look at all the pieces in light of your own self-knowledge and um, self-direction. And then the third phase is reconstruction. Uh, so you're falling up in reconstruction after you, you know, hit the bottom of deconstruction. You get to build uh, the house of your true self, and that's a bit. Um, maybe fans of Richard War will say I'm not quite being fair to him. Um, maybe they wouldn't. Um, so yeah, that's uh, his voice is part of the story of how the term deconstruction has become become one that the community. Uses for itself, which is why I'm using it, and not the phrase apostasy, because uh, th- that would open no doors, um, or phrases like heretic. Um, this is the term the community has adopted for itself. So I'm I am deconstructing. Someone might say, and that is that's uh, something they would never say. I'm I'm an apostate. <laughs> I'm I'm having a period of apostasy. Um, probably you know most people that I've interacted with and and talked to. So and and I think it's just in terms of generosity and communication, it's probably good to begin the discussion using their own terms. And, and, and like I said, until you can say them back better than they can say them. Paul, do you, if you want to follow up on that at all, just type it into the chat.
3: And I think you made a good, helpful, Andy, kind of differentiation about that. You're saying that deconstruction doesn't, you kind of talk about soft and hard and, right deconstruction doesn't necessarily mean uh, apostasy. so That's not actually in in that sense. And I I think it's a good point of that. In the same way that like asking hard questions doesn't necessarily mean someone is trying to throw out their faith. It might mean they're exactly trying to go deeper into it. And and that would, so it's helpful to to have a category where maybe some of the same things can be happening. uh, And part of our wisdom is knowing is this kind of a healthy and good direction or or not? And and yeah, you still have to listen to the questions regardless and, and answer.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Great, I think we'll we'll do that. That was very helpful, Andy. Um, I know I just keep, I ignored someone in the back. So Dawn and then Jim and then mm-hmm. Steve here. Andy, um, my question is to do with
2: being. A family member or close friend of someone who is being murdering, being um or if, who is somewhere in that process. Um, one of the things that I think is typical is to experience fear and sort of trepidation. But, I but there's often a lot of fear, a lot of complicated emotions that are triggered in, in walking alongside someone. And I just wonder if you could speak to that a bit, maybe, maybe what some of those fears might be and how to navigate them in seeking to walk, be able to walk well with somebody that you love.
1: Yeah. Are you, Don? Are you talking about fears that you that the that you feel or that the awesome. family?
2: Yeah, fears of the loved one of the person being deconstructing. The fears that that loved one has for their family
1: member or friend who is in the process of deconstructing. Hmm. Yeah. And just in in this scenario, would the person not deconstructing, but who's experiencing fear? What are they? What are they fearing? I'm just trying to get at the heart of your question to answer it. Are they fearing for their friends decon the result of it or? Um, how how talking about it would go, what to do for them.
2: I, I just think oftentimes I I feel myself or hear other people's fear when someone is sort of veering off the straight and narrow of their of their Christian their family's Christian experience that that would maybe one of the fears would be that other children in the family would follow. Um, and so, therefore, it's not just the journey that this person is on, but also other other people, or that that asking questions will stir up more questions in the community, or fear that um, that there's something has you know there's just a lot of fears, I guess, and just how to navigate that, I guess, or how to trust God in the midst of it. I guess that's what I'm asking.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know, this sounds like it would be best in a long conversation, so I, I don't quite know, feel that I have the grasp of the crux of what you're asking, but I, let me just say something, and you can redirect me if you need to. Um, one of the first things I heard about the English library when I was much younger was I, I spoke to a friend named Marta, and she had just come back and said, I had the most amazing experience, uh, there people seem to treat you as though, uh, truth is something other than their views. And they invite you to sit shoulder to shoulder and look at truth together to try to understand it as opposed to, I have truth and I need you to understand it, which is a different posture. Um, and that's one of the things I... Like about Labrie, um, that you can there there is a sense of confidence that I don't know truth either. You know, I'm not denying you to enter into a conversation like this, you don't have to let go of every all of your convictions. Um, but you can enter into holding those convictions with humility and say, there's truth across the table from us. Let's sit shoulder to shoulder and try to look at it, try to discover more about God's reality. And and that can be frightening or even threatening when and d- depending on what you're talking about uh, it can get very personal and especially in a in a ch- church context or a family context it can be very intense uh, so I I guess I don't want to just say we'll have this aloof and confident posture that you can sit there and you know look at truth with the confidence that you'll find truth together because uh, that gets really messy um, but I would uh, yeah I, I would want to try to reach for that kind of posture uh, that the Lord is here among us uh the the he the spirit will guide us in all truth um and and we don't have to be afraid to uh, disagree. We like I said, you know we can even hopefully we have the relational durability that we can spread out our disagreements right there on the table you know for everyone to see and even still, Laugh about it, and then it's done. And we pack it up, and we say, "Well, we still don't see eye to eye, um, but I'm glad we had that conversation." And then do what we can to shore up that relational dur- durability. If anything needs to be said there, uh, I, I guess that's kind of the that's the posture I'm arguing for, uh, as opposed to uh, we we cannot. That's a minefield. We must not go there. Or you know, on on the opposite uh, swing of the pendulum. Have a seat, Sonny. I'm going to tell you exactly where you're wrong. And this is going to be difficult, but you need to hear it. So, Don, I don't know if that that addresses what you're trying to get at. But I guess I would still say that I I would hope um, that there is God being who he is and hopefully relational connection being what it is. There'd be enough hope and durability there to even walk into fearful conversations. But that's really hard.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, Andy. Thanks for this really helpful lecture. Um, I just wanted to hear could you say just a bit more? You've used the phrase, I like that deconversion community. Could you just say a bit more about that? Um, yeah, just I like, you know, the community aspect of it and yeah, just what, yeah, you know, you know, what that, what do you mean by that and, and how that works and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Yes, yep. Yeah, I think in part one of this lecture, I read a quote by Mike McCarg about his own uh, experience with his church beginning to struggle with his faith. Uh, He he was in a Baptist church and was having these questions and these doubts and really kept it secret, but it kind of started to leak out. He was a Sunday school teacher, and uh, he started Focusing on things that, in his words, were kind of more more acceptable to modern sensibilities, and de-emphasizing other things, and then people started to get wise. Uh, he's got a memoir called I think it's called Surfing Surfing the Waves or Surfing with God in the Waves, something like that. Sorry, Mike, if you ever listen to this. Uh, yeah. But this is this this he he's talked about his own story a lot. Uh, so anyway, he went on. I'll, I'll answer your question by. Telling the story of a very prominent voice in the deconversion community, uh, he went on with some other people to found the Liturgists, which is a podcast. Uh, it's not it's not expressly against Christianity. They they would not say that, but there are aspects about Christianity they find very problematic. And it's a, the the Liturgist has become a, a kind of leading voice in the. Deconstruction community, deconversion de- community, exvangelicals, unfundamentalists. There's there's a lot of labels that get applied online uh, that gather people who have had a certain kind of experience together. Uh, so the the liturgist is yeah a leading voice in the quote unquote deconstruction community, um, which is a different experience of questioning your faith than uh, two hundred years ago. Right, Because it you were probably much more deeply embedded in a one in one place, uh, and if you were it, it was just more difficult to get away with questioning Christianity, you know, and really a lot more difficult the further back you go, if you did that five hundred years ago in Europe, you get burned. you know you get put to death. Uh, there's lots of stories of you know Calvin uh, had people come through and you know question the Trinity, and that was a death sentence in Europe. uh so from there we've gotten to a place where it's now the, the path to deconversion can be like walking into a room of, of friends you haven't met yet. Uh, so there's some people find themselves in this position where my, my old community uh, that I have to walk away from uh, doesn't get me and has kind of hurt me. And then it doesn't take long to get swept into this current of um, a dialogue and uh, um and and gatherings like they have conferences the liturgist has conferences where people who gather under that banner um build relationships with one another so yeah it, it's a it's a whole multimedia experience deconversion today um you're we're, we're all, we've and we've all got it just uh, right in our pocket there so you can find uh like all communities they appear on the internet uh, and they, this one has manifested both in digital form and, and um, yeah, books and podcasts and, and gatherings and con- conventions and all that. Did you want to follow up with anything on that, Jim?
0: No, that's that's helpful. What? Yeah, no, that's that's good. I mean, um, I think to the liturgists they do music as well, do they? Is that was that a different thing?
1: Yes, there. I don't remember if it's him. I think the some of the people he founded the podcast with. In a band, okay,
0: interesting. Yeah,
2: hey, thanks, Andy. Yes, yeah. maybe you had a question. Hi, Andy. Nice to see you. Um, Good to see you. I was thinking about your terms soft and hard deconstruction. Um, and then thinking that in a lot of church communities, even soft deconstruction is something to be they find fearful. Um, have you, in your studies, found a correlation where there's been an absence of soft deconstruction that led to hard deconstruction? And if that is the thing, how can we encourage a healthy soft deconstruction in our faith communities?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. how do we how do we encourage a healthy form of soft deconstruction in our in our communities? And in in my reading on this topic, have I encountered a correlation between a lack of soft deconstruction at the appropriate time and later hard deconstruction? Uh, The answer to that second one is is definitely yes. Uh, Everyone's experience is unique, of course, because we're all individuals and we all have different stories. But when you survey enough unique experiences, patterns emerge. And that is certainly one of them. That's kind of um, one of the beats of how deconstruction stories are told that's kind of the that's the dark time my you know what I, the the construction that I had to tear down my community couldn't handle my questions um it when I voiced them I got shut down or just doled out these answers that I'd already thought of uh you know no one was really listening and so I finally just had to walk away whereas I I, I do wonder and this is, I was talking about the great de and how optimistic it is about what happens when certain things change. I think this is one of the big things that if the church did better, it would, perhaps the trend would change. Um, the the rise of deconstruction would have been told differently. If the church was more of a place where soft deconstruction is, uh, is normative. You know, this is what we do here. I think there are so many reasons Christians should have that as a value. You know, we can even question um, because God, God is infinitely wise and we're fallen and finite. So we have so many reasons to expect soft deconstruction, but I think it, it can be so uncomfortable. It's difficult for churches to get it right. I mean, it, in a sense, your question is behind a lot of what I had to say tonight. So yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen it as a, a pattern, and it's certainly a pattern in the in deconversion stories.
0: Okay.
3: All right. Well, I think we'll, we're uh, ten to ten. It's been very, very good lecture and Q and A. Thank you very much, Andy. And uh, like I said, if, if the part one and another, you can look at uh, three things newsletter and what was the still point. Right on Substack, Uh, more into uh, how people look at this process.
0: So, thank you, Andy. Thanks,
1: everyone.